As we gather in this space, we're going to gather around God's Word in Ephesians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there. If not, you can follow along with the words on the screen. We're going to hear Ephesians 5. Uh, Paul writes uh, in verses 25 through verse uh, 33. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one can ever hate their own body. But they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word offered to us in its reading and in its hearing, and together we give thanks to the Lord God Almighty. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Father, I look out at this room and I see so many of your sons and daughters, and I give you thanks. I give you thanks that you have called us your children, and indeed we are. I pray that in this time, your Holy Spirit would enable and empower our spirits to call you Abba, Father. And I pray, Father, that you would bind my lips and my tongue, that no false word would pass from them, but that it would just be you moving me aside completely and by the power of your Holy Spirit speaking directly to the hearts of those that you love gather here. I pray that you would be glorified in this time and Holy Spirit come and reveal to us the wonderful truths contained in your word. Thank you. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. It brings me great joy to see several of my friends who normally are off at college home for Thanksgiving. Welcome back home. Uh, it's good to see you all. And uh, to the new faces, welcome. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Zach Anderson. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant. Uh, and I get to preach this morning. So uh, bear with me. Just kidding. Um, it, it'll be good. So last week, um, Pastor Jason was the preacher. And he brought us a message introducing the concept, the biblical concept of defining the relationship between God and his people as a marriage, this covenant, faithful relationship of God. And specifically, he was bearing down on the way that we are prepared and the way that we prepare ourselves for this eternal union, this, uh, this process of transformation. Uh, he called it a heart surgery. 
heart surgery, the way that we're transformed from the inside out and are prepared by the power and work of the Holy Spirit for this eternal union with God. Uh, As a kid, I thought about this analogy of marriage between uh, God and his people or Christ in the church as though it were kind of gross. I was like, "Uh, no, I am not going to be anybody's wife. I'm a boy. Uh, And um, I didn't think it was a particularly helpful analogy. However, uh, objectively speaking, it is. And today we're going to look into why. So this analogy of uh, marriage to describe God's relationship to his people is found all throughout the whole Bible. In fact, it goes all the way back to the time of Moses in the book of Exodus. And when the people of Israel invade Canaan and they, they uh, do a conquest of the nations of Canaan and they move into the promised land, and we see it in the way that God speaks about his people. He uses uh, a, a language that's sexual in nature to describe his people, not in a strange way, but in a way when he warns them, as you go into the promised land, don't prostitute yourself after the false gods that are here. Don't prostitute yourself after the wicked ways of the people of Canaan that are going to be your new neighbors. Remain faithful to me as I will be faithful to you. And the relationship between God and his people was called a covenant. A covenant. And it carries on through the time of Moses and into the prophets perhaps nowhere more starkly and abruptly apparent than in the book of Hosea. A couple months ago, Pastor Jason taught out of the book of Hosea, the very life of Hosea the prophet was this depiction of this analogy of marriage between God and his people. Hosea, uh, if you're not familiar with the story, was called by God, a prophet, and told, go and marry a woman out of prostitution. Go and purchase a woman out of prostitution to come and be your wife. And so Hosea faithfully goes in obedience to God, and he marries Gomer. He marries Gomer, a woman of prostitution, and he brings her into his home, and he calls her his wife. And they live together. They have two kids together. And then tragedy strikes. Tragedy strikes as Gomer runs away from Hosea and goes back into her life of prostitution. And Hosea, with broken heart, turns to the Lord. And the Lord says to him, Hosea, go and buy back your wife out of prostitution. For this is what I have done with Israel. And so Hosea, in an act of incredible, incredible trust and obedience, goes to where his wife is prostituting herself and purchases her again and brings her into his home. They have another kid, and time goes by, and Gomer again runs away from Hosea. And she goes back again to her life of prostitution. And Hosea turns to the Lord and says, Lord, what would you have me do? And God says, go and buy back your wife. You see, the life of Hosea 
in his very living of it, was a picture of God's relationship with Israel. And it paints the picture so potently for us of the distance between us and God. See, the the marriage relationship between God and Israel was not a happy marriage. It was not a happy marriage. Israel, time and again, turned away from the God who loved them, turned away from the holiness that he'd called them to, and turned to prostitute themselves with the false gods and the evil practices of their neighboring nations. And when we are faithless, he remains faithful. This analogy of marriage continues on through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, but when we get to the New Testament, it shifts in focus just a little bit. It shifts its focus from a a marriage between God and his people Israel to Jesus being the groom and his marriage to the church. We see this in Matthew chapter 9, in Mark chapter 2. Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. And then in the letters of Paul, we get this elaborate explanation describing the relationship between Jesus and the church as a marriage. Now, if some of you are like me and you're like, ew, I'm not going to marry Jesus, right? Bear with me. You're in good company. There are other people I've met. There are girls who I've met who are like, oh, Jesus is my husband. Oh, I'm just saving myself for Jesus. And if that's you, welcome to church. I'm so glad you're here. I don't find either place of being where I have been or where that is as being especially helpful. Um, (laughs) But here's why this analogy of marriage is objectively helpful for us. This analogy provides us with a theology of the love that Jesus has for you and me. This analogy of marriage provides us with, an, uh, with a theology of the kind of love that Jesus has for you and me, for his church. So Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, I've known of some people who have abused this passage, and in case any of you have been a victim to it, I want to just take a moment to address it so that it's not a stumbling block for you. There are people who have come to this passage, and they've just read verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And they've closed their Bible and said, all right, that's all I need to know about marriage. Uh, Woman, submit and make me a sandwich. That is so, so wrong. And it's so, so foolish. When I come across people like that, I'm like, man, you didn't read it, did you? It's a classic case of people reading exactly what they wanted to read. All it takes, oh, this one's so easy. All it takes is to back up one verse to verse 21, where Paul opens up this discussion by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He then goes on for three verses talking to the wives. Wives, submit to your husband in this way. And then he goes on for nine verses talking to husbands, saying, husbands, this is the way that you are to submit to your wife. 
So I don't want this to be a stumbling block for you. With that being said, this is a great text to learn about marriage. This is a great text, maybe the best text in the whole Bible to learn about marriage. In fact, it was the the text that was used at my own wedding. However, today's sermon is not about marriage. It's not about marriage. So uh, my college students who are back in the room from being out of town, if you checked out because it's another sermon about marriage, time to check back in. This sermon is not about marriage. This sermon is about establishing our theology and broadening, deepening our understanding of the kind of love that Jesus has for the church. So let's jump in. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you're taking notes, the first point is this. The love that Jesus has for the church is a self sacrificial love. He gave himself up for her. I used to mow lawns for a living, and I got to ride on a zero-turn lawnmower. Anybody driven a zero-turn? It's like, okay, a lot of you need to go ride on a zero-turn. It's, <laughs> it's awesome. It's like pod racing, right? You, you go forward, back, turn to the left, turn to the right, and it's like you're riding on this big, grass-destroying tank. It is amazing. So one day I was driving a zero-turn mower, and all of a sudden I came to a screeching halt because just a few feet in front of me was a bird, all right? And and it's normal if you're mowing in kind of big wooded uh, areas, nice yards with lots of trees for wildlife to come across your path. You just stop, you wait for it to go, and then you keep going. But this bird did not get out of my way. And I looked a little closer, and I saw that this bird had a nest on the ground in the middle of the yard with three little eggs. And so I was about to go and go around this bird, but before I had the chance, this bird bowed up to me. All right? And to my surprise, this bird, I mean, like this big, charged at me on the zero-turn lawnmower in a flat-out sprint, okay? So uh, I avoided the bird, I avoided the nest, and uh, they, they continued to live on as a happy family. But I went home and I thought, I've got to look up, what is this bird? And so I googled, like, bird that's not scared of anything, <laughs> nest on the ground, And I found it after some research. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've encountered one. It's called a killdeer. Anybody heard of a killdeer? Killdeer. So killdeer, they don't kill deer. (laughs) In fact, they don't uh, kill anything except for little insects and bugs. Uh, They're called a killdeer because of the sound that they make when they whistle. Um, uh, Don't blame me. I didn't name it. But a killdeer will stop at nothing to save its nest and its little babies in the eggs. Killdeer have been known to charge at bulls, cows, horses, humans, cars, tractors, mowers. It doesn't matter. They will bow up and run at a perceived threat to protect its eggs. And a killdeer is a beautiful picture of the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. 
But here's what's so special about the killed deer and its connection to the love of Jesus. The killed deer does not have to deliberate. It does not have to decide, am I going to sacrifice myself to save these eggs or should I run and save myself? It acts on raw animal instinct. It has only one choice. Save. Sacrifice. This is the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. Friends, if you are feeling far gone from Jesus, if you are feeling deep in your sin, be encouraged. Jesus does not deliberate on if he's going to sacrifice himself to save you. He doesn't think, no, you know, I don't know if this one's worth it. He doesn't. He doesn't. No matter how far you have gone, Jesus has but one choice. He gave himself up for the church. Let's keep going. We're going to jump ahead to verse 28. Ephesians 5, 28 through 32. We're going to read it, and then we're going to go back and unpack it. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. It's a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So to take this passage from the beginning, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. This rings for us of the words of Jesus when asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as, as yourself. Husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. We cannot love others when we aren't able to love ourselves. We can't love others when we aren't able to love ourselves. After all, verse 29, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. Now, I feel compelled to pause here for a minute because some of you may painfully notice that Paul seems to ignore the fact that some people do hate their own bodies. He says, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for it. Some people do hate their own bodies. Maybe you have fallen into that category. The realities of self-harm, self-mutilation, self-murder, self-hatred, self-loathing, They're real. 
some of you have experienced this kind of brokenness. And you might be coming to this passage and saying, Paul, what are you talking about? And there's another set of sermons for another time. But I feel the Spirit leading me to speak to you if you're in that place. To ask the question, what is the hope if that's you? What is the hope if that's you? The hope is this. For those of you who have experienced the brokenness of self-harm, you have an even greater capacity to experience the wholeness of Christ's love for you as he feeds and cares for you like his own body. Okay, so if that's you, there is hope for you, and we'd love to talk with you. All right, we'd love to, to walk with you through that. There is hope. You have an even greater capacity to experience the wholeness of Christ's love. Verse 30 For we are members of his body. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Paul is saying as members of Christ's body, Christ feeds and cares for us. But in verse 30, we come to a horrible, horrible issue. It's a horrible, horrible issue of translation. Uh, normally, we like to pick on the NIV in these settings. The NIV sometimes does a weak job of translating the Greek, and we turn to a different translation like the NRSV or the ESV. Uh, in this case, it's like all the translators after the New King James translators got in a room and decided, all right, we're all going to throw this out. Okay, cool. Okay, we're on the same page. All right, good. So uh, the King James and the New King James got it right. Everything after that didn't, and I don't know why, because they really, really missed a great opportunity. You see, the original Greek language of Ephesians 5.30 says, Christ feeds and cares for the body because we are members of his body, we are members of his flesh, and we are members of his bones. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now maybe there's a slight ring of familiarity there. Flesh and bones. Flesh and bones. If we're having trouble coming to it, Paul gives us a really big hint in the next verse. This next verse is in quotations. Notice that if you have your Bibles. It's in quotations. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. My Bible has a little footnote that says Genesis 2.24. Paul is quoting Genesis 2.24, so we're going to turn there together now. But we're going to start in verse 23. This is in the context of creation story. God has created Adam, the first man, and he's looking for a partner for Adam. And no suitable partner could be found amongst the animals, amongst the rest of creation. And so he creates Eve, taking the man's rib and making a woman. And when he brings Eve to Adam, Adam says, verse 23, this is now 
bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. You see, friends, Paul was trying to make a double reference to Genesis chapter 2. Bones, we are of the bones of him, we are of the flesh of him. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. But the translators missed it somehow. But we're not going to miss it. And Paul builds through this point, this, this expounding of the text of Genesis 2 to say, this is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church Profound mystery. The Greek here is so powerful. The word profound is the Greek word megas. It's the biggest thing that you can have in the Greek language. Megas. And mystery is the word mysterion. Say mysterion. Mysterion is not a mystery that is concealed for the purpose of hiding. Mysterion is a mystery that is revealed by the word of God. Paul says, it is the biggest divine revelation of mystery. But when I say that a man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh, man and wife, I'm talking about Christ and the church. But if we're honest with ourselves about our sinful nature, this just flies right over our head. This feels impossible. This feels like a profound mystery, but not one that can be divinely revealed, one that cannot be known. See, the entire arc of the Old Testament is painting this picture of just how far apart God and his people are. Because time after time after time, when he is faithful, we are faithless. When we're honest with ourselves about our sin and the desires of the flesh, the things that we long for so much more than we long for God, It just doesn't make sense. How could we be united with Christ in the same way as a husband and wife, two become one? So where do we go from there? If we're sitting in that, that tension, where do we go from there? I'll tell you what the temptation is. The temptation is just to, to cast it aside as something that, that can't be known, that can't be reconciled. The temptation when we come to uncomfortable tensions like this that present us with the realities of our brokenness, the temptation is to just move on. But there is something wonderful for us if we're just willing to sit in the tension 
Because the thing about divine revelation is it cannot be solved by human minds. You can't take a magnifying glass to this and figure it out. You can't strive enough with the text, wrestle enough with the text to just come to an enlightenment of this. You have to surrender to the tension and hope and pray and ask your Father who loves you to reveal it to you in your heart. So here's the invitation for us today. Jesus gives us some help in John chapter 17. This wonderful mystery that Jesus wants to be one with us in the same way as the wonderful intimacy that can be experienced between husband and wife. I'm going to invite us to say that this is the first step going on a process of coming to terms with this. It's to put ourselves before the Holy Spirit and say, reveal this to my heart and to do it by reflecting on John 17. In John 17, Jesus is walking from the Last Supper to the Mount of Olives where he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be taken into captivity, beaten, mocked, spit on, and crucified. The very act that Paul identifies as what makes a way for us to be made one with him. Jesus is on his way to do that, and he offers this prayer to the Father, and we get the wonderful privilege of being brought into a private moment of prayer between Jesus and the Father. He says this in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, referring to the 12 disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Friends, I'm going to invite us to sit in this passage where the heart of Jesus is revealed to us every day this week. To just open up our hearts to the desires of Jesus expressed in this prayer. That we might be one with each other and one with him in the same way as Jesus and the Father are one. Oh, to know that sort of intimate relationship with the Lord. I don't think Jesus would have prayed it if it weren't possible. I don't think Jesus would have prayed it if it weren't possible for us to taste and see 
that he is good in such a close, intimate connection with him. That it's as if we're no longer two, but one. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a mega mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Friends, don't resist the self-sacrificing love of Jesus for you, no matter how far you've gone. He wants to be one with you. He wants to know you so closely that your thoughts become his thoughts, that your desires become his desires, that the ways in which you move in this world are the ways that he moved in this world. And this is possible only by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit revealing it to our hearts if we would just open ourselves. So let's go to God in prayer and begin that right now. Father God, this is a profound mystery that you have given us Marriage, not just for our own pleasure, but so that we might understand a little bit what kind of relationship you want with us. Father, I just confess for me, you can confess for you if this is true of you, I confess for me that this feels too far off. you've said it's possible. And more than that, you've said it's your deepest desire. And so for this reason, Father, I choose to trust you and say yes. Open my heart. Help me to be willing and reveal to me what only you can. Come Holy Spirit. <laughs>